sort of the, you know, what was being said but not being said that was sort of coming down from an administration was that like, you know, we're not making money, you guys have to work harder. And so obviously as a provider, that doesn't feel good. And so I took a lot of those things that I saw happening in the agency and I did the exact opposite. This is the What Works Podcast, and I'm your host, Tara McMullen. If you want to build a business that can stand the test of time, you need to figure out what works for you and your small company. That's why every week I talk with real small business owners about what's really working for them. I want to help you fill in all the details of how others do what they do so you can fill in the details that work for you. My guest this week is Allison Pigeon, the founder and CEO of Move Forward Counseling. What started out as a solo private practice in early 2015 quickly grew into a group practice and has been expanding ever since. Taking what she learned from the traditional model of mental health care, Allison set out to create something different when she started her private practice. Her attention to detail to the whole client experience and treating her staff exceptionally well have created a reputation of excellence that is recognized by her community. In addition to overseeing Move Forward Counseling, Allison works as a business consultant for Practice of the Practice, and she's an adjunct professor at Immaculata University, where she teaches a graduate-level course on the business of private practice. I wanted to learn more about how Allison makes a group mental health practice work and what her process for scaling such a high-touch service was. Allison and I chat about her strategy for bringing other counselors and therapists on board, how the financial model of the business works, and how she divides her time between counseling and running the business. We also discuss the common identity crisis that occurs as high-touched, service-based business owners scale their businesses. Now, let's find out what works for Allison Pigeon. Allison Pigeon, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's going to be really fun. Yes, I am really excited about this topic, um, both because I think it's super relevant to so many of our listeners scaling a service-based business, but also because you, you're you doing it in a way that many of our listeners are not, which is in you know having a brick and mortar business. And so I think there's going to be a lot new to learn, but I think there's also going to be something that feels really familiar and maybe very promising <laughs> to a lot of our listeners too. But before we get to that, can you start off by just sort of telling us how you got started uh, as a solo private practice? Sure. So um, what ended up happening was I was working in community mental health and I got super burned out. <laughs> and as you do. It, it, as many people do who work like a regular nine to five job. And um, I had two little kids at home at the time, a toddler and an infant. And I was the director of two outpatient clinics and it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks one day, like, I can't do this anymore. This is too much. And didn't really know what I was going to do. I just knew I needed to get out. And somebody said to me, well, why don't you start a private practice? And I was like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> That's genius. So, so literally, I gave six weeks notice. And like, you know, I left on a Friday and like Monday morning, I opened the, the solo private practice. Wow, that's an amazing transition. What what did that first or what did that, you know, first day look like for you? Were you did you rent an office? Did you have get like branding and a website done? What did that 6-week process look like for yeah, you? Yeah, so the 6 weeks was just really putting together the bare bones so that I could start seeing clients because I had some clients follow me from the um agency. So I had I got a website put together and I um, found an office to sublease. Um, it, actually, it was in my chiropractor's office. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I just said, Hey, do you have any extra space I could use? And he was like, sure. Um, so yeah. So just getting some, you know, like business cards printed up and like figuring out how I was going to bill insurance, which was a whole new ball game for me. Um, but yeah, I just kind of put the basics together so that I could start seeing clients. Gotcha. So instead of uh, like a minimum viable product, sort of a minimum viable business at yes. that point. Yes. Had to make sure right. I had chairs in the office, you know, these kinds of things. These kinds of things. Totally. So how long were you doing that then before you started thinking about adding other providers into the mix? Uh, only like a couple months. Oh, wow. Okay. So what changed then? What, why did you start thinking about adding people in that soon? Yeah. So because I had jumped so quickly into private practice, I had not really done much research on what, you know, other people were doing in the private practice world. And so once I had left my job, I had a lot of time to do research and figure out how am I going to build up this practice and, um, you know, heard about other people running group practices and how great it was for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, private practice can be quite lonely. Um, and so it's nice to have other people around. Um, obviously you can make more money. Um, and then, you know, you're able to scale your business and it's not tied directly to trading dollars for hours anymore. Um, which really appealed to me. And I had had the experience of managing staff, um, at the community mental health agency. So that wasn't a foreign concept to me. And I was like, Oh, this is all stuff I was doing before I could do this again. Um, and so I just sort of figured out how to start adding providers. Gotcha. Okay. So then when you started adding providers, was your goal to kind of diversify the services that you were going to offer? Was it to replicate the kinds of services that you were already offering? What was your strategy there? So my strategy was to diversify. So I work with um, primarily adults and the first person I hired actually worked with kids. Oh, okay. So yeah, so that was just sort of like a nice compliment um, to what I was doing because I didn't want to see the children and she did. So if I got an adult who said, oh, my kid could really use therapy, I could say, oh, well, Laurie works in my office, you know, when I'm not here, you could, you know, bring your child to see her. So um, started out doing it that way and, and sort of how it evolved was um, I came up with the sort of umbrella that were a practice focused on women's issues, but then underneath that umbrella, everybody has their own specialty. So not everybody is doing exactly the same thing, but I've been able to sort of tie it together um, just for the purpose of branding and marketing. Mm, I love that approach to branding. I have a feeling that's something that a lot of um, counseling practices or mental health services practices are probably not thinking about. <laughs> so that sounds like a really smart decision on your part. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how the group practice model works? Are the other counselors that are working with you, are they employees? Are they contractors? Are you billing their time and then taking a percentage of that? What, what does that model look like? Yeah, so it really varies by state, as I've come to find out. Oh, um, okay. If, you know, it's more common that practices are set up where everybody is a contractor versus an employee. And so in Pennsylvania, um, it's very common that group practices are set up where everyone's an independent contractor. So that's what I've done. Um, and I have found that to be um, a really good model for a variety of reasons. Um, and so, yeah, so everybody is a, a contractor, my therapist, and also my assistants. 
And then we do um, like a split. So they get paid based on, um, you know, the clients that they see. So they get 60% of whatever they bring in for that hour. And then 40% goes to the practice for overhead. Gotcha. So they're not paying rent or anything. It's just that clean split of of the income that comes in. Right. Exactly. Well, that's very simple. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So as your practice grew and can you tell how many providers do you have now and how long did it take you to get to that point? Um, so right now, not including myself, there's seven providers. Wow. Okay. And you've been in private practice for how long now? Remind me. Um, it's about three years. Okay. Wow. So that, that's pretty significant people growth really for a business like that. And you told me that, uh, you know, the culture, maintaining the culture of the practice as you grew was really important to you. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious how, well, one, let's, let's start with how you describe that culture. What is the specific culture of move forward? Yeah, that's a great question. So what, I did was coming out of community mental health, um, and this is not, you know, specific to the agency where I was at. This is, you could pretty much say this across the board, whether you're in Pennsylvania or anywhere else in the country. Um, Community mental health tends to not treat their um, staff very well in terms of there's a lot of demands about you have to see this many clients per week and there's lots of um, bureaucracy and paperwork and different regulations you have to follow and um, a lot of time that you spend doing things that aren't therapy. Um, And so kind of the the model that I saw um, from having that experience was like, um, you know, as therapists, like we have to be martyrs, like we have to do what's best for the clients, like sort of the, you know, what was being said, but not being said that was sort of coming down from an administration was that like, you know, we're not making money, you guys have to work harder. Um, and so obviously as a provider, that doesn't feel good. Um, and so I took a lot of those things that I saw happening in the agency and I did the exact opposite. Um, and so my staff, um, you know, feels valued, they feel respected, they have autonomy and flexibility over their schedule, over what kind of clients they want to see. Um, you know, they're getting paid well so that they have time to take care of themselves and take care of their families, Um, And so I really just thought through like, well, how do, how would I want to be treated as a provider? Because, you know, ultimately that's what I spent, you know, 10 plus years doing. Um, And so then it was really easy to kind of take that and, you know, develop that culture um, in my own practice. And so, you know, I think too, for the providers, like, it's not necessarily about the money. Um, And so I try to do other things to make them feel um, valued or taken care of. Like one of the things I started doing is last summer, um, I started buying like snacks and drinks to keep in the office so that they had things there, um, to eat and drink when they were working. And like, it's amazing the feedback that I got from them about that. Like they love it. (laughs) They were like (laughs) texting me, like, I love the guacamole and the chips, you know, in the, in the kitchen, keep buying those, you know, like, um, and so that was just really a cool thing to see that like, you don't have to do some, you know, huge thing. Like you don't have to give them like some bonus that's thousands and thousands of dollars. All you have to do is buy snacks for the kitchen and like, they're happy. (laughs) 
That is such a good takeaway, I think. And even for those of us who are running virtual businesses and don't necessarily have a snack room, um, I think you can still take things away from that too. That like you said, it it doesn't have to be a giant bonus. It doesn't have to be a giant pay raise. Uh, It doesn't have to be some extravagant vacation policy. It can be something as simple as a snack or a card or a thank you or a shout out somewhere. And that makes all the difference in, in the culture that you're, that you're building. Um, How, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk more about your role in the business at this point as well in the practice at this point. What's sort of the ratio that you're working with when it comes to how you spend your time? How much time are you spending counseling, actively counseling people now? And how much do you time do you spend actually running the business? Yeah. So last fall, I decided to make the decision to stop taking any new clients. And so the sort of amount of existing clients I had at that time, I'm just, you know, finishing out with them. And so at this point I have about five clients a week that I see. Um, and it's hard for me to, um, estimate how long it actually takes me to run the practice, maybe like 15 to 20 hours. And then the rest of the time I'm doing, um, business consulting. Gotcha. So when you're spending that 15 to 20 hours working, on the business or even managing the business, what are some of the things that you're doing in that time? Marketing, admin, what does that look like? Yeah, definitely um, driving some of the marketing. Um, Fortunately, at this point, we've built up such a great word of mouth um, referral base that the amount of marketing I do is pretty minimal compared to what I was doing when we first started. Um, But you always have to market in some degree or another. Um, I spend, um, actually a lot of time, um, sort of managing the finances and the accounting. Like I have an accountant, Mm -hmm. but I still pretty much have my hand in that. And that was actually something that surprised me that I almost was like taking on this CFO role. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and I was like, wait a second, like, is this really the best use of my strengths or, you know, um, so it's kind of been an interesting balance to, um, sort out like what is something I should be farming out to the accountant versus what is something I should still be keeping my hands on. Um, uh, so I spend time doing payroll cause I don't really have anybody that does that, um, because they are contractors. So we don't, it's not truly running payroll. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, just sort of like little things that come up, um, you know, insurance problems that I have to help the assistance with if they have questions or sometimes the therapist will have clinical questions they want to run by me. Um, you know, it's just kind of a smattering of a bunch of different things. And as the practice has grown bigger, I've actually tried to like gradually like pull myself out of more and more of those like day-to-day things. Um, and so that whole transition isn't completely, um, you know, I'm not completely removed from those things, but I'm always working towards like, how can I remove myself? Gotcha. I'm, I'm actually really intrigued by, uh, the, what you mentioned about some of the other providers having clinical questions for you throughout the week, just throughout the, the course of doing what they do. And that made me wonder how, you know, in an, in an office where it sounds like basically people are doing their own thing, right? This is what they got trained to do. They're, right 
basically working for themselves since they're independent contractors. How much are you actively working on team building or develop or skills development or just development of the practice people wise, or are you pretty hands off? Um, so I would say that uh, we do have a staff meeting once a month for an hour um, where we're just mostly talking about like administrative related things. Like we're not talking about clinical things. Um, and then I also have another um, system set up where we use um, what's called the seven magic questions. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mm-mm. book playing big by Kim Flynn. No. Yeah. So she, um, that book is great. I would recommend it to anybody if you're managing people um, or running a business in general, you know, definitely it would be worth reading. But essentially there's like these seven questions that she's developed that um, she uses to communicate with her staff. And so we have individual half hour meetings with everybody in the office once a month. And then we have the big group staff meeting once a month. And so those questions are asked every single time. Um, And that's actually going back to what we were talking about with culture. That's actually a big part of how the culture developed because I felt like one really important thing was that we were communicating well with each other. And so part of the questions are like having some like hard conversations about like what's not working well or like what, what am I, you know, not doing as a boss that you wish I was doing? Um, And, you know, having that sort of like reciprocal feedback Um, And so that has really helped, I think, um, you know, just provide that sort of time and space to, you know, bring up if there are problems and that um, I find that, you know, we can sort of prevent problems from getting bigger because we're talking about things on a regular basis. Gotcha. I love that. Um, Okay. Shifting gears back to you again. (laughs) Uh, One thing that I have found to be pretty common uh, with people who we've had on the podcast who are who are scaling, especially service based businesses, um, is that there's often sort of an identity crisis that occurs as you start to realize that you're more indispensable as the leader of the business than as a provider, the way you've always thought about yourself. Did you go through that kind of crisis as you were scaling your practice? And how did you as a mental health professional kind of work yourself through that if you did? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, that definitely happened. Um, So obviously, you know, my whole background was, um, you know, getting a master's degree in counseling psychology and and working in the field for a long time, just providing therapy. And, um, you know, when I first started, a big chunk of the income coming in was from me seeing clients. Um, And so it was even hard to see, like, from a financial standpoint, like, how could I stop seeing clients? Because Mm -hmm. so much of my my own personal income was coming from that. Um, And then I had a a meeting one day with a business coach and, and, you know, sort of came to the conclusion, like, I'm holding the business back because I can't be the CEO. I don't have the time and the the space to think about these big picture things and where is the practice going because I'm seeing clients. Um, And then I just realized like, Oh, I have to stop seeing clients and, you know, hope that I put everything into place so that like, you know, the other therapist will then start making up for the loss of income, um, which did happen. And, you know, there's a little bit of growing pains there, but eventually it did. And then I, 
um, was able to see, oh yeah, it's much better for me to be Mm -hmm. the CEO. And that's actually what I enjoy doing um, rather than seeing clients all the time. Gotcha. That makes total sense. Well, because you have embraced the role of CEO and because you have cared so much about the culture and the operations of your practice, you're actually able to do some other cool things too. Can you tell us a little bit more about, and you mentioned this earlier, about the work that you do as a consultant and also as a professor? Yeah. So I started working for Joe Sanak, who owns a consulting um, business called Practice of the Practice. And Joe um, has just done amazing things for people in our field. Um, He's super positive, encouraging people to go into private practice and teaching them how to do it. And he actually um, was somebody I reached out to in the very beginning of starting the group practice to get some help. Um, And I definitely credit him with helping me that year of, um, actually the business quadrupled. Um, wow. Yeah. And so that was pretty amazing and, um, approached him about, uh, working for him as a business consultant and he was willing to take me on and train me. And, um, so now I get to work with people all over the United States and all over the world, um, to help them build up their private practices and, it's just been such a cool experience to help people and see their businesses grow. And I just love the whole aspect of running the the business. And so it's fun, really fun for me to help other people do the same thing. Um, and then I also had um, approached my alma mater, Immaculata University, um, which is out near Philadelphia, about um, teaching a class to their graduate students about how to start a private practice because, you know, we go to school to learn how to become counselors. And a lot of those folks are going to go into private practice and we don't learn any business skills. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I designed this class. It's a one credit class um, where um, they sort of get a taste of like what it would be like to actually start their own private practice. And they have to write a business plan and all that kind of stuff. And, it was funny because the first time I taught the class, some of the students like by the end look like a deer in headlights because it's like <laughs> it's like an eight hour class that, you know, it's, it all happens in like two days. And so by the end of the second day, they were like some of them were like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, that wasn't my intent. But um, but I think it's good that they found that out before they actually, you know jumped into it, or maybe they're just not ready to do it yet. But some of the students were like, yeah, this sounds great. I definitely want to do this. That's awesome. Um, I, I It occurred to me while you were talking about how much you love building the business of the practice and how you're working with people all over the place on building private practices. I'm curious if you have a sort of a vision for what you want the business of mental health to become, Um, you know, because you talked about how so much of the culture around working in mental health and working in in, um, kind of community-based practices is so poor um, and that you you in your own practice have a vision for something better. Is that something that you want to see ripple out? And and what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think um, not to like totally get into the weeds about healthcare and um, specifically mental health care and just how things work with like insurance and the laws in our country and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think a lot of it is driven by insurance. Um, you know, a lot of people tend to use their insurance to pay for mental health care. And 
um, you know, compared to other types of healthcare, um, mental healthcare is reimbursed at a very low rate. Um, and so it is really hard as a mental healthcare business to actually turn a profit. Um, I remember talking to my boss when I worked at the agency, um, about, you know, sort of, I was interested in the business kind of at that time. And, you know, asking her about the ins and outs of that. And she said, the best that we can hope for, for outpatient is that we break even. Wow. Um, and so obviously when you're running a small business, you don't want to just break even, you want to turn a profit. And, um, I've had to be very savvy when it comes to, um, running the business and looking at the numbers and deciding what insurance panels that we're going to be on, because, um, there's just some of them that don't even pay, um, enough to cover the overhead. Um, and so I think, um, you know, what I would like to see is the demand is definitely there. Like people want mental health care. Um, and I think there is a shortage because typically, um, therapists do tend to be underpaid, especially when you compare it to like, you know, how much school we have to go to and the degrees we have and all the work experience we have to have in order to be licensed. Um, and so, you know, I hope that there's more of that awareness that builds and then ultimately like the insurance companies would have to be kind of the driver behind, um, you know, just reimbursing better in order for um, a mental health care to be more accessible to people, but also, you know, people in our field get burned out and they leave um, because, you know, maybe they're just scraping by making $40,000 a year, seeing like 35 clients a week and they just, they can't do it anymore. Oh, I can't even imagine. Um, <laughs> do yeah. you ever feel a sense of conflict around, you know, having a drive for profit, wanting to turn a profit on your business while also being in a healing field? Cause I, I again, I know many of our listeners you know, who are healers, who are, who are, who are helpers in one field or another often have that, that tension around making money, doing what they're doing, or even making more money doing what they're doing. And it sounds like you have a pretty balanced view of that, but I'm curious if you ever experienced that tension or conflict as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that comes up a lot because I don't know why there's sort of this, um, culture in mental health of like, as providers, we're expected to like, do a certain amount of pro bono work, or like, we're expected to offer people like a reduced rate. And that's just like, you know, like, I don't, I don't understand where that comes from. Like, I wouldn't go to my family doctor and say, I know you normally charge $100 an hour, but I, things are a little tight this month. Could I just pay you 25? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, we wouldn't say that to a doctor. But for some reason in our in our society, it for some, it's okay to say that to a therapist. So, um, you know, I certainly, um, if I had money to be able to offer people, um, you know, a lower rate, I, I certainly would like to do that. But at the same time, like I see the budget, I see what's coming in and what's going out. And I just feel like as therapists, in order to do our best work, we have to be paid, um, enough so that we can have, time for self-care so that we can, you know, go get additional training so that we can um, not have to work two jobs um, so that, you know, we can be fully present when we are at work doing therapy. So I just feel like 
um, you know, I see it sort of from that other side and I see how, you know, what we charge is not exorbitant. It's what it takes to run the practice, to pay my therapist well, and to have a little bit of profit left over at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, I'm sort of happy to communicate, you know, that's sort of my perspective on it. And not everybody would agree with me, but that's just sort of how I see it from my end. Sure. It sounds like profit is sort of part of the sustainability equation in what you're doing. And if we want people like you and businesses like you have to be around, <laughs> profit has to be part of that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. I was Go just going to say, I, you know, I've seen other, you know, what they appear to be successful um, private practices in, in our area close. Um, and, and I know for a fact, one of, one of them closed due to financial reasons, like they just couldn't keep the doors open anymore. Um, and so, you know, that's something else I think about too. Um, you know, when I'm making decisions in the business related to finances is that that's a very real possibility. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on a happier note, um, <laughs> as we start to wrap up here, I'd love to hear what you have coming up next. What are you working on? What are you developing or how are you growing move forward, uh, this year? Yeah. So funny that you asked me this question today because Ooh. this morning <laughs> I just signed uh, papers to put in an offer on an office condo. Ooh. Yeah. So we've been renting space um, up until now, but um, we're going to purchase our own thing, which is very exciting. Um, so I have a um, an investor who is willing to um, help me out and we're going to co-own this space. And so I hope it all works out. <laughs> That's incredible. And will you take up the whole space or will you have other uh, businesses in there with you? Yeah. So we're going to take up maybe about 60% of the space. And then the other 40% is going to be um, another medical practice. Cool. That is so awesome. So now we can add real estate mogul to your yes. titles as well. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal. Well, Allison yeah. Pigeon, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for kind of shedding the light on how scaling a mental health practice works, especially in the brick and mortar realm and uh, giving us uh, just the behind the scenes look of what it takes to build a culture that works for everybody, you, your your other providers, and of course, your your patients as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Find out more about Allison Pigeon and Move Forward Counseling at moveforwardlancaster.com. What Works is brought to you by CoCommercial. Okay, so what exactly is CoCommercial? CoCommercial is a social network, event producer, and support hub, especially for small business owners in the digital space. We know you want to turn the business you've started into something that will stand the test of time, provide for you and your family, and help your customers transform their lives or work. We connect you to people who get the obstacles you're facing as an entrepreneur. We produce events to educate, connect, and inspire you on your journey. We're a community of business owners who help you find creative solutions to your unique challenges without reinventing the wheel. Here's how it works. Step one, join CoCommercial. Step two, share a challenge, obstacle, question, or setback you're currently facing in your business. Step three, get personalized answers from a diverse community of experienced business owners. Step four, 
never waste time on Google or Facebook trying to find answers for your business again. We're not another online course. We're not a free group where you get lost in a sea of self-promotion. We're not a cut and paste template for doing business online. And we're not aiming to teach you a hundred new things you don't have time for. We're here to support you on your journey. We help you get back on track and back to running, managing, and growing your business as quickly as possible. No fluff, just personalized, just-in-time answers to your biggest and smallest questions. Ready to give it a try? Request your invitation to the network today. Go to cocommercial.co. That's cocommercial.co. That's it for this week's episode of What Works. If you love getting a behind-the-scenes look at how real small business owners are making it work, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy listening. We also appreciate you leaving a review and sharing the podcast with your friends or colleagues. What Works is produced by Rosie Medias and edited by Marty Seafelt. Kristen Runvik prepares our show notes. Our opening music is by The Shrugs and our ad music is by Marley Carroll. Tune in next week for another look at how small businesses actually work.